So Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you do ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us, sorry, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I would like you to have your Bible open, and we're now going to look at another part of the Bible, which is Romans chapter 12. Now let me confess to you as we begin. There are three DVDs in our home that are kind of on a virtual repeat in my life. Let me explain. There is the West Wing series that I have watched more times than I would care to exist. There's a kind of a competition in our extended family between my father-in-law and I as who's watched it the most times. Um, he's losing at the minute. At the minute. But he's retired, so he might overtake me. There's, uh, I watch that once a year, probably in the winter, because it's a long seven-season set. Then there's Band of Brothers. 
Band of Brothers is pretty hard to beat when if you are sympathetic to World War, if you're amazed at the uh, feats of World War II especially, then can I commend to you Band of Brothers? It's, uh, I don't know, 15 years old now, but 10 episodes, they really do blow your socks off. I watched that just before, uh, about October, I time I watched that every year, just before November the 11th and so on. The other third series is the Lord of the Rings set. I've just finished watching the Lord of the Rings set, the extended ones, the proper ones. They really are long, some of them. And it reminded me of a great scene that's in the third box set, which is the Return of the King. In the Return of the King, the people of Gondor are in great danger and trouble. And so what can they do? They cry out for help by lighting a series of beacons. There is a really moving scene where the beacons are lit. And when a beacon is lit, it's a wooden pile, oil is poured over it. And one, it sets up a chain of events with this wonderful horn music and brass music that's been composed by Howard Shaw. And this message is sent across mountain peaks of Middle Earth, this imaginary place. It's not real. It's New Zealand. But it's amazing for the glorious scenery. It's amazing for the camera work. I presume it's stuck on the underside of a helicopter going through these snow-topped peaks, through misty mountains, through sunset and sunrises, this brilliant music, and it's a great cry for help. It makes you want to go to New Zealand. I hear someone's going next year. That's somewhat like what Paul has been doing in chapters 1 to 11. It's not a cry for help from us, because we don't do that, but it's mercy from God, and he's taken 11 chapters to show us mountain-top peaks of what God has done in his mercy and in history. We are justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's a mountaintop experience. That's a beautiful sight to behold. There is now no guilt in life or in death for those who stand confidently in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You're not guilty anymore. God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in the heart of every believer. That's Romans 8. I wish we were still there. It's a wonderful chapter. You're a son or a daughter of the king. Everything that is Jesus is now ours, and it will be in the future. You were slaves to the law, but now you are free in Christ. You are called. You are justified. You are glorified. And you will be glorified in the future. Those are some of the mountaintops. But we don't live on the mountains. I wish sometimes I would. We don't live in the mountains, we're down on the earth, aren't we? And that's what Paul does in the remainder of the book, beginning in chapter 12 through to chapter 15, 16. He says, therefore, verse 1, first word, therefore, I want you to understand the gospel, chapters 1 through 11, now chapter 12, verse 1, so what? Therefore, in view of all this wonderful vista that you've seen, how should you live? You're not on the mountain, you're down below in the shadow of the mountain. If you believe what I've taught you, if you believe what I've shown you, then you will live like this. Chapters 12 through 15. And verses 1 to 2 of chapter 12 are a wonderful little summary of it in a nutshell. If you really understand the gospel, this is the character, this is the sort of stuff you're going to be engaged with. This is the community you're going to be a part of. If you've got time this afternoon, before 4 o'clock, whatever sporting event you're watching, perhaps even before 2 o'clock if you're watching the tennis, why not read chapters 12 through 15 with a pen and underline every time you think there is an echo of Jesus' words on the Sermon of the Mount. It's 
very, very interesting. On the Sermon on the Mount, Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is speaking um, commands to create a new community. If you know who I am, this is how you'll live. This is how you'll treat other people. I think Paul does exactly the same thing. There are echoes of 12 or so times, uh, echoing from the lips of Jesus, so to speak, of this is the new Christian community. This is love. This is uh, a Christian ethic. This is hospitality. This is Christian behaviour. Because of chapters 1 to 11, in view of God's mercy, this is the new community that it creates. And therefore, nearly every time you read the second person pronoun, the you, every time you read you in chapter 12, it's plural. Nearly every time. Because it's community language. Christian life and Christian faith is always to be given away. And it's always to produce a community. And in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I've not got very much further than that, Paul boils it all down and he says, this is the essence of being a Christian. In view of God's mercy, this is the essence. Let's look at that first of all. Look at this strange sentence, this paradox. Verse 1. If you believe everything I've told you, it's me paraphrasing, if you understand everything of the gospel increasingly, you must be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. A living dead thing. Now that immediately is a great paradox that is very strange. What is a sacrifice? Why is Paul using this strange mixture of intertwined, something that's living and something that has died? If you were a Greek, the context was, if you were a Greek or a Roman, if you were, had a Hebrew Jewish background, you would have latched onto this straight away. I know what a sacrifice is. And Paul, by putting these two words together, a living sacrifice, is deliberately creating a tension that I want us to spend a minute or two understanding. You would have been familiar with taking an animal, representing you, in payment for your sin, taking its life, shedding its blood, and offering it to a deity, no matter what deity you followed. That was familiar practice. But Paul is saying, being a follower of Jesus, in view of everything that God has done in his Son, that means you're going to be like the Old Testament way of doing things, but also unlike it in some ways. You're going to be like it, but you're going to be unlike it. It's the same, but it's different. What do I mean? Two differences. An Old Testament sacrifice would have been taken, whether it be a pigeon, a dove, a, a ram, a bull, or whether it was a, a grain offering, that's slightly different. But if it was a living animal, it would have been taken, you would have taken its life, and its blood symbolically would have taken atonement for you. Its life would be representative of yours. And it was a sign to say that there needs to be a shedding of blood for justice. There needs to be the shedding of blood for your sin to be paid for, to be atoned for. For you to get right with God, someone has to die, someone has to pay. And that's true, but that's absolutely not true if you're a New Testament Christian. Paul said that. Paul said that's absolutely not true if you're a New Testament Christian. That's already happened. Jesus has died a sufficient, sacrificial death. In Hebrews it says, once for all, once for all, once for all, no one needs to take a sacrifice anymore. No one needs to shed blood anymore. No one needs to die anymore. Jesus has died once for all. God has accepted his sacrifice and therefore in him we are safe. But if that's 
difference, what is the same? The sacrifice that Paul's talking about is one of gratitude. It's not for the atonement of sin. Jesus has done that once for all. But we are to live our lives as living sacrifices. That's talking about thanks and gratitude and praise. That's the offering. We are a living testament, testimony, signpost of gratitude to what God has done in Jesus. We point to him, not to ourselves. Here's the second uh, similarity but difference in the Old Testament. When an animal died, it was over. You couldn't bring it back to life again. You'd just uh, taken its life, shed its blood, it's been representative of you. It doesn't get off the uh, sacrificial altar because it's died. Its life has been taken. Whatever you bought and offered, it was over. It's finished. But Paul says, I don't want you to be a sacrifice, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Now that's strange. Some uh, old pastor has written, the trouble with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. I kind of like that. In the Old Testament, when something had its life taken, it died. Its use had ended. But Paul is saying, no, no, I want you to be a living sacrifice. This is the difference. This is the uh, contrast. That means every day you're to be a living sacrifice. Crawl off the altar. Every hour, every moment, right now, Paul is saying, if you're a Christian that loves Jesus with the Holy Spirit in your heart, making you more like his son, deliberately, uh, continually, uh, every moment you can, perpetually, in an ongoing sense, you're offering your life in the service and praise and gratitude towards the one who saved you. You're a living sacrifice. It's not once and you have to do it again and again and again. This is a continual sacrifice of your life of gratitude, not atonement, of gratitude and praise to God. It's not like the Old Testament sacrifices that died. You're alive to God. New life in you, you're a living sacrifice. That's why this tension is created in verse 1. If you understand the gospel, you're not a killing sacrifice, that's Old Testament. You're a living sacrifice, thinking how you can serve God with your life. But how is that true for a New Testament Christian? This made me scratch my head. Because what's it like? In what way? In what way am I to be a sacrifice today? I think it's this. You cannot be a Christian unless there is death in your life. Death to your self-confidence, death to your independence, death to your conviction that you know best. I think that's the primary death in your life. I think I know best. I think I'm trustworthy. I think I'm okay, not with Jesus at the wheel, as the corny American song says, but with myself at the wheel. I know the way. But God, if you just help me a little bit, that would be okay. When you become a Christian, when you are a living sacrifice, that's death to that way of thinking. Think of Abraham. He thought he knew what's best. He was a prosperous man. God comes to him and says, I want you to go out. And he says, okay. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Think of Moses. No, no, I'm no good to be a leader. I'm pretty stuttering with my lips. I need someone to be a spokesperson for me. I need my brother to come and help me. Nope, you're the man for the job. Aaron can come, but you're to lead my people. Think of the great women. Think of Mary, the greatest one, you could say. What does she say? 
Luke 1.38, remarkable text we look at at Christmas. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. All of these people, all of the great failures that there are in the Bible, they understand that their way is not best. They start thinking like that. But they, as they know more of God, as they know more of his character, they trust him completely with their lives, even when they can't see what the future holds. Think of Mary. Golly, you're going to have a baby and he's going to be the king of the universe. No, no, that's not what, I'm not married yet and that's not in the plan that's going to ruin my uh, social security. All these things. She doesn't say that. She says, may it be as you say. I'm your servant. It's a remarkable testimony from her lips. Friends, it's death to your self-confidence as a living sacrifice. You don't read part of the Bible and say, I will do that bit, but I will not do that bit. Jesus is Lord, capital L. He's Lord of my life. He's altogether lovely. He's altogether loving, and he knows what's best. And so often I cannot see one step in front of the other. But God knows what's best for my life. It's no picking and choosing. If you pick and choose, you're not being a living sacrifice. You're to follow Jesus wholly. He's infinitely loving, but he's also infinitely wise. And then look at verse 1. This is your spiritual worship. That means service. You can translate that word true. Um, Give yourself, it's kind of saying, give yourself, sacrifice yourself, lay yourself out for God, put yourself in service for him, because all of us are sacrificing to someone or something. Put it that way. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we all sacrifice, we all lay down our life, we all spread out our arms on the altar of something. I'm going to get a great, just a great career. I'm going to lay my life down, I'm going to sacrifice my marriage, I'm going to do whatever it takes. 80-hour weeks, I'm going to do a 90-hour week, I'm going to make this startup a success. My career is most important to me. I want to save for this or that. I want to do this or that. I want to be this or that. I want my family just to be the best and I want to be the source of pride for me. So I'm going to lay down my life for my family or my career or my bank balance. We all lay down our lives for something. But if you're not a living sacrifice for Jesus, you will be serving a cruel master. But Jesus is altogether lovely and he's altogether wise. Be a living sacrifice for him, says Paul. If you understand the gospel, that's the essence of being a New Testament Christian. You're a living sacrifice of gratitude to him. Here's number two, the aspects. What does that mean? Still kind of remote, still not on uh, boots on the ground level. If that's the essence of Christianity in the New Testament sense, being a living sacrifice, Paul gets very specific. He goes into detail. Here are three parts here. The aspects of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Verse 1, it affects all of your life. Notice what he says. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. A Greek mindset would divorce body and soul. And so Paul says, no, 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 I don't want any aspect of that. Every part of your life, public and private, no division. If you're a living sacrifice, it's both together. It's a holistic understanding of a person, inner and outer, not belly buttons. If you're an inner or an outer person, the wholeness of your being is a living sacrifice to God. Therefore, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world 
but be transformed on the outside by the renewing of your mind on the inside. That's where it begins, by taking every thought captive to the Word of God. It's one of these mountaintops again. The essence of Christianity is being a living sacrifice, but it's all of life. And Paul wants to rub that in. He wants to knead it in like yeast into a dough. And so stick with me if you can. Every area of life is affected by this. So in chapter 12, verse 5, we're to serve one another. We're to serve one another because we belong to the body of Christ. Chapter 12, verse 19. Don't take revenge because God alone is the one who is the just judge. Chapter 13, it's all about being good citizens. He's needing in the gospel. It's going to affect every aspect of your life. Be a good citizen, chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 10. Love your neighbour. Didn't Jesus say that? Yes, he did. Chapter 14. You're to be considerate of the weaker brother and sister, the weaker Christian. Don't harm them because Jesus died for them. Here's the point. Here's the challenge. Are you needing the gospel into every aspect of your life? Are you growing in that sense? Are you trying to apply it as you seek to live for Jesus as a living sacrifice? If you're not doing that, you're not a living sacrifice. It's that stark, that clear. To be a living sacrifice means you're working in chapters 1 to 11, privately, publicly, corporately, community-wise, family-wise, work-wise, personally is where it begins. Here's the second aspect. It's the inside as well. It's the first part is the uh, all of your life. Look at the, uh, the attention from verse 3 that now you get on the inner person, the, the inner self-life. Verse 3, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given to you. If you understand the gospel, you will not think too highly of yourself. But neither will you think too lowly of yourself. It says, you will think of yourself with sober or accurate judgment. You have a, an accurate, sober understanding of who you are because of the gospel. You're not thinking about yourself as kind of Uriah Heap. You're not kind of dragged along the dust. But equally, you're not levitating above the ground thinking you're better than everybody else. It gives you a, a wonderful self-understanding. That sounds new age. I don't mean it to. It gives you a wonderful self-understanding of who you are in Jesus as the Holy Spirit brings the truth of who you are in him to bear on your life. If you're not yet a Christian, you, you'll have a different marker. There's a measuring stick at the back, a height chart. You have ones of different magnitude you say with different success criteria I feel pretty good about myself because I've done this I've achieved that I've behaved better than so and so in this area I've scored more goals than him and her we all have different measuring sticks by which we can compare ourselves but also compare ourselves with others as we beat them over the head with our own measure of superiority here's the measuring stick that we all need in Christ we are more loved than we can ever imagine. We're known, but we're loved. Because of the gospel, it gives us this great awareness of who we are in him. We don't think of ourselves too highly. We don't think of ourselves too lowly. It's a unique self-image, a kind of unique 
identity. We were completely lost, but now we're completely loved because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And that elevates you when you're feeling low and down, and it humbles you because you didn't save yourself, you were rescued. Here's the third aspect. We're told that if you understand this, if you're working into every area of your life, that yeast in the dough, if you understand who you are in Jesus, that unique self-image, then you will become a servant. You'll become a servant. This is not self-centred. It's not self-understanding. But look at verse 6 and following. It starts to talk about corporate life. It uses the image of a body. And it's saying, well, there's lots of gifts that you may have. You might be great at generosity. You might not have lots, but you're great at hospitality. You're caring for people. You're merciful. You're good at leading. You're good at preaching. You're good at teaching. Here's the point. These two words that stick out for me is each and every. Each and every. Verse 3, to each are given different gifts. That means if you're here this morning and you come to church for people to serve you, you need to hear this. Everybody's got a gift. The church really should have no passengers. Everybody is prepared by God to serve in some capacity. So you should be saying, not what can my church do for me? You should have the American person sort of up on the screen. But what can I do for my saviour? In view of his mercy, how can I serve? In view of his mercy, who can I tell? In view of his mercy, who can I listen to on a Sunday morning? Who can I minister to on a Sunday morning? It's not all preaching, teaching up front. Who can we and how can we minister the gospel one to another before church, after church, during the week? The key word there is each. Look at the second one. The key word there is every as well. Everybody's different. The body language of uh, ear and eye and toenail never gets a mention. Feel sorry for them. But the big toe's important. The eyes are there. The arms are there. It's a picture of uh, an integrated, interdependent organism, a person. The finger is not a foot. The eye is not an ear and so on. Same image in Ephesians. But the point is this. Every person has a gift. But each person is as unique as a snowflake. God has given us all different characteristics, different abilities, different paths to apply the gospel to and to share with others. We all have certain gifts, certain abilities. But friends, wherever your past skill set is, are you needing the gospel into your heart? Are you applying it to redefine yourself in Jesus so you can deal with your past because you're a new person if you know him? And no passengers in church. How can you serve in Emmanuel? How can you serve the wider church? How can you get involved in uh, ministries that serve the church internationally, nationally and locally? Show me what I can do. What a great prayer to pray to God over the summer and then come and talk to me as soon as I get back from France. That's the essence. That's uh, the nature of it. But then how do you do that? How do you live like that? How do you serve when actually I don't want to serve. I'd far rather be served. Think about that thirdly. It's important to recognise 
compassionately. That we are not, Christians have not got the monopoly on doing good. We haven't got the monopoly on community and kindness. There are many people who live great lives in the world and in our neighbourhoods. Some people do it out of custom. Some people live good lives out of custom. This is just the way I was brought up. I've always gone to church, but I'm not yet a Christian. Just the way I was brought up. I've always seen people across the road. I've always looked out for my neighbour. Just the way I was brought up. It's our custom. Other people live great lives, good lives, because of religion. If I don't do this, if I don't go there, if I don't give this much, if I don't pray this much, God is going to get me. It's another motivation for living a good life. Other people, I think, live good lives because it's just a prudent way to live. If I help you, if I lend you my chainsaw, then maybe you can help me lift this slab. That kind of way of uh, transactional analysis. That's why they live good lives. If, if I give you my seat, then maybe when I'm tired, you can, I can sit in your seat. Different motivations to live good, generous, honest lives, seeking justice for other people. Paul says, verse 1, Christian friend, your motivation to live like this is completely different. I urge you, brothers. This is a, an inner joy motivation, but Paul begins by saying, there is an unction, there's an imperative, there's an obligation that I can call to you, Christian people, to live in this new community that echoes the Sermon in the Mount. I urge you, you should be living in this way. But then notice what he does, verse 1. I urge you, you're obligated to do this. But then he says, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. What One is kind of a, an obligation word, an intellectual word. You should be living like this. But then he goes for the heart and says, in view of God's mercy. Look at his mercies. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look how he loved you. Chapters 1 to 11. Look at how he gave himself voluntarily for you. That's the reason why you should serve him from your heart, not just from your intellect and head. If you've known me for a while, you know that I am not really an animal lover. I love them if they belong to other people. Uh, there's a story of me and a goldfish that didn't go so well. That's the only pet I've ever had. It lasted two days. Please don't report me to anyone. I did my best. But I read this story recently of uh, a man who had a dog. A man who had a dog, and every day they'd go walking with this lovely little dog-shaped object um, through the same park, and he always had this leash on him, and he thought, I've been doing this for weeks and maybe even a couple of months now, and uh, I think it's time that I trust my dog. Call him Rover. I think I'm going to give Rover, I'm going to let him off the leash, because he's kind of straining at the leash. He knows that I'm the master, he knows that I'm the boss, and I've taken him through this park for the same journey for the same route for the last few months. I'm going to take him off the leash. As soon as he did that, Rover was off. This great bolt of lightning just went off beyond what his eyes could see. And at that point, the, uh, the owner, the master, thought, oh great, that's him gone. What am I going to do now? I'm going to go home to my wife and all I've got is a leash, not the dog. No, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust Rover to return. I'm just going to keep on walking. It was 10 minutes and this jolly dog had not returned but at 10 minutes or so the dog rover who'd gone off like gray lightning bolt returned like a gray lightning bolt to his owner's side and just kept on walking by his ankle 
for the rest of the journey. They uh, put the leash back on as he crossed a road, but the author said from that point on, unless it was crossing a road or something dangerous or unusual, the owner, the master, never, ever, ever had to put a leash on the dog again. He just stayed with him. This is my master, the author said. He's still going to take care of me. I know this walk that we're going to do. I've done it for the last few months. If my master wants to walk in the park, I'll walk in the park. But he no longer needed a leash. That applies to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Friends, we are not obligated to serve God as if we're on some sort of leash. It's not just an intellectual understanding of the gospel. Paul says, in view of God's mercies. It's the heart. We like that little dog who stands by the size of the master's ankle, walking around the park in freedom. I know he's the master. I know he's in charge. I want to be with him. I want to be tethered to his ankle, not by a leash because I have to be. I love him. And I know that he knows what's best for me. I know that he cares for me. And so I want to serve him. But notice it's not just the mercies. If you've been a Christian for a while, if you know the gospel more fully, it's not just the mercies of God that means we want to serve him. Unless those mercies include the cross. Think of Jesus on the cross as we close. Jesus did not go to the cross as a living sacrifice. He went as a fully living, divine person. Fully human, fully divine. But he was not a living person at the end of the cross. He was destroyed. He was a killing sacrifice. He was like an Old Testament sacrificial lamb who died for us. Now, why did he do that? Why did he, as it were, take his hands off his life? So that his father would be known. His father would be glorified. His father would be made much of. And because he wanted to put his arms around you, that's why he laid open his arms. He was a, not a living sacrifice, he was a dying sacrifice. This strange word in verse 1, a, a man who I read this week called John Gerstner, he says verse 1 can be translated in a slightly different way. I urge you, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, looking back to Romans 1 to 11, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your reasonable worship. He says that's a, a hard word to translate. It's the word logikos which is logical, uh, reasonable, rational. When you see Jesus with arms open for you, not as a living but as a dying sacrifice, opening your life to him is a completely rational and reasonable and logical response. Because of what he's done for you, it's the only rational and reasonable way to, support, uh, to, to respond, to lay down your life for him, because he gave his life for you. So let's close by hearing that verse. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your lives. View the mercies of God, says Paul. Look again at the cross daily. And do that until you want to offer up yourself as a living sacrifice. Let's pray.